You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a podcast where we discuss the ideas of philosophy, ethics, religion, history, and culture. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. We'll see how this goes, but basically, there's this guy, Julian Bagini, and he wrote a book called Virtues of the Table, and it's been sitting next to my student cookbooks for like, well, several years now. So I thought as a graduate, I should probably read it. And um, I thought it was a really good book. I've been talking to you guys a little bit about it, obviously. And it's basically this idea of combining or applying virtue ethics to how we think very broadly about food. And as an extension, because food is just this big thing that we're all engaging with constantly, like itself. And basically, he splits the book into four parts. So he's talking about what qualifies as good food? Where does it come from? And what do we count as good food, whether it's ethical or healthy or whatever? And where have we kind of gone wrong with our thinking about this more broadly? And that's the part I want to talk about today. We'll see how that kind of goes. I originally thought, well, we'll just kind of avoid veganism and all those kind of very heavy discussions, but fuck it, let's just talk about it. And so virtue ethics is all about cultivating character as opposed to thinking about good or bad moral actions. So the classic moral theories like utilitarianism and deontology, they're like looking at the either the intention or the outcome of the action. And rather than looking at actions, virtue ethicists, relatively recent thing, which I guess we can talk more about later, virtue ethics is looking at what kind of person you are instead. Because a lot of classic moral theories run into problems when it comes with coming out with like very concrete rules. So this is kind of a way around that without just descending into complete relativism. Uh, but yeah, we can get more into that later. And then the other ones he talks about is like fasting and when not to eat. And the last part he talks about is eating in general. So taking the time to enjoy certain kinds of food and meal times and things. But we can talk about that in a separate podcast. At the moment, I just want to talk about kind of where good food comes from and um, what that fucking means. Um, and I thought I'd get you guys on it because like, so Kieran, you, you work with nutrition and stuff. And what do you do? What is it? So I'm, I, I basically manage cases at a healthcare company. So part of my job is giving people advice on nutrition, setting up nutritional referrals for them, sort of identifying when they may have an issue with aspects of their life that relate to nutrition. So it's, it's, it's a big part of what I do on a day-to-day basis. And then I'm just interested in it in general, really, sort of for my own, my own personal life and, and sports and stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to say with the boxing, I guess like diet's a big part of that. Yeah, and just general kind of lifestyle, really. Like, um, I, th- I think over the last few years in particular, I've definitely learned a lot about just how profound an impact changing your your diet and the the things that you eat and the way you look at eating as well, not just what you eat, but how you know how you see it or how profound an effect that can have on you in many other ways than just kind of like how you look and how you perform physically. So yeah. Yeah, that's that's basically the point in what this guy Julian Bikini is saying. Mm. Um, and then so Sam, uh, I think we've talked a lot in the past about certain ideas relating back to like self-control and autonomy. So I thought, yeah, you'd be interested in this. And then Zach, you you work with Cider. And I think that actually has like a lot of crossovers with this because like he basically bangs on about, you know, what what do we actually like about organic farming and getting stuff local or sustainable like what does any of that mean and isn't there just like a simpler way to think about this without just like falling into this trap of just making a billion checklists yeah and the big, the big drive that we've seen particularly the last sort of 10 years yeah 
Yeah, exactly. It's like there's so many things to think about now. And like I'm not completely convinced, but I like the large majority of this stuff is it's just such common sense. There's a few red pills as well. It's I thought it was a good book anyway. So first of all, I just wanted to ask like you guys in insofar as your relationship with food, would you describe yourself as foodies in any sense? Foodies just means I like to eat lots of cake, doesn't it? I'm a fucking foodie, man. Yeah. I guess, well, we're all consumers of food, but normally I guess it's a term that kind of covers aficionados of cooking and baking as well. So kind of makers as well as consumers of of food. I cook things. I, I don't bake things. I'm not very scientific with how I kind of create meals, I'd say. Um, but yeah, I guess, yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit of a grey area defining being a foodie but normal i'd say one has to sort of well, consume just about as much as they make and uh mm. maybe experience you know food from different cultures quite consistently as well so how would you define a foodie because i don't really know how to answer that because i've heard the term and i'm vaguely familiar with what a foodie is but i guess just for clarity i don't know i mean i i, I would say it's in some senses is actually quite a bit of a food snob i think there's a yeah. there's a fine line um it's a kind of talked about that when I was talking about like people who are really into ale and it's it's actually quite a delicate balance because once you start getting really into something you end up saying stupid shit like there's only one way to cook a fish and like you know really chastising other people for like making things differently that's that's the problem it's the fucking Dunning-Kruger curve though isn't it it's like as soon as you start to get a little bit into something you're like well I know everything about you know making coffee and now I'm going to be an unbearable asshole about this until I realise, oh, actually, there's loads of ways to do it, and then I sort of chill out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not a foodie by any stretch of the imagination. I enjoy food, but to be honest, since this book, I, I've never really thought about it. I thought about the classic debates like veganism stuff, and I guess we'll get into our different takes on vegetarianism and stuff like that. So I've never really thought about it, like local or organic or any of that bollocks. I barely think about things like free range, um, which is really bad coming from somebody that studied philosophy. <laughs> I've had like, I've had like small gains in those areas because I used to work in catering, but I've never professed to like know much about it at all. Like I, I think like everyone, I try and do my best in that area, but I've never really got to grips with it. And I think, yeah, this, this book really helped with that. Yeah. So do you think that people think broadly about food in general yes and in lots of different ways some good and some bad what, what, what do you mean by what do you mean by people think about food do people think about food yeah do you think that people have a good sense of thinking of food in an intellectual context or an ethical context no or even knowing like something we can actually measure like knowing the uh the nutritional benefits of food as well no, maybe not in nutrition, both. I think people know what they like and they'll be like, oh, I like, I like this nice food because of this or whatever. But yeah, I'm not sure m many people think about the sort of science behind it and all that stuff. But I think, I think it depends like on which sort of axis of analysis you're looking at. So if we're talking about do people en masse care about where their food comes from? Do they care about the kind of the ethics in behind their food's journey, where it's come from, what it took to produce it and put it on their plate, I would say no. I would say most people haven't got a fucking Scooby and that most people don't want to have a Scooby. Whereas, like Sam said, I think there are probably a lot more people out there who care more about how the food makes them feel. So, i.e., 
chocolate cake is my favorite. I love it. I'm going to go out my way to get it. And when I get chocolate cake, I feel happy. And they probably do think about that. So maybe in that sense, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's that mood regulation rather than like, yeah. Yeah. Also quite selfish, if you ask me. To get chocolate? No, 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 no. But it's just, I think, uh, to, to only look at it in the sense of I enjoy it and that's that it can be quite selfish when you don't kind of consider the other aspects of enjoying food and the kind of sometimes the the repercussions that can have. Yeah, on your life in general. On your life in general and how that will affect the lives of those around you, how that will affect, you know, I don't want to get into the whole obesity thing now. I think maybe save that for later. Obesity was at the front of my mind when you said that, yeah. Because then that will in turn have a drain on healthcare resources, but also like the ethical reasons, like, you know, if you don't give a shit about the fact that the meat that you're eating came from a a slaughterhouse with horrendous conditions then you are being selfish you know whether you admit that or not yeah there's really no two ways around it yeah yeah that, that's what i kind of mean by that really i guess yeah so the backdrop for this this book really i mean he opens by saying that there's been an overabundance of choice and like ease of access to all kinds of different foods and that's actually made us value food a lot less we're really really frugal and we don't give a fuck about recipes half as much as we used to or availability of things we just expect everything on a plate literally it's just this idea that paradoxically choice has made us actually think less about the choices we make i largely agree with it's like it's, it's like choice paralysis isn't it where it's like yeah. you've got so, so many options i can't remember if it's in fight club or for some reason i'm fucking banging on about that book but it's like he goes to like a crisp aisle and he gets freaked out by how many like hundreds of thousands of different crisp options he gets. So he just gets oh. the same one that he gets every single time. I don't remember that then. Yeah. This is why I think he wants to talk about general virtues that apply to food, but also apply to the rest of life in general. Because that reaction to choice is really kind of symptomatic of what's happening in so many other things in society. That sort of burying down and just like refusal to you know, answer difficult questions. It's sort of like repression. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the the abundance of choice and the abundance of food is something that we've only really seen within like the sort of last hundred years, I'd say, and predominantly in Western civilization, I would say as well. There's some parts of the world that obviously are still really struggling with availability of food. So it's yeah. only a select few nations, I would say, but but it's brought a whole host of problems with it. And I think mm. what you're talking about is the fact that people don't value it the same way anymore is massively a problem, which contributes to a whole host of physical and um, psychological problems. Yeah, like like you were saying, I, I think it's this idea of food used to have a big place in the community as well. Um, and now it's just become this weird, empty, fashionable thing, like people having sandwiches at lunch or whatever, and not really yeah. thinking much, unless it's to do with consumption. So like going to a nice restaurant or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think we're living a lot more individualistic lifestyles and uh, more career-focused, single-minded. You know, this is kind of the, you know, the cliche of sort of nine till five roll, grab and go, take, take a coffee and a sandwich on the run. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we've got now apparently about... 80,000 supermarkets in the United Kingdom, you know, fast food joints, takeaways, restaurants on pretty much every street corner in the country. And it's just, you know, the, the nature, we, we, our brains crave fatty and sugary sources, you know, high energy, but at what cost with, you know, poor nutrition as well. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not too surprised that things have changed in the last sort of, 
well, 50 to 100 years. Ultimately, a lot of the infrastructure was set up post, well, the Industrial Revolution, sort of the canning processes, the thousands of items that could be made on a factory line has, uh, well, led, led to the spike that you've seen today. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, actually, because um, when we look at this, and we were talking about this just before we got onto the podcast, really, about how many people in today's society are in a perpetual state of sort of stress or anxiety or whatever due to the sort of you know the the never-ending fucking sludge that is adulthood you know Mm. in this day and age and um uh, there's a very real response in your body when you're when you're under a lot of stress which you you, your body produces cortisol which is a stress hormone what happens when your body produces more cortisol is um it can cause higher insulin levels and um, because of that your your blood sugar will drop and then you will crave those sugary and fatty, fatty foods that Zach was on about. So that's typically why we see people who are in high pressure jobs where they don't have a lot of time. There's kind of like three tick lists really, uh, three things on the tick list for somebody like that. Number one, is it convenient? Because I'm in a stressful job, I've got hardly any time. Number two, does it taste good? Mm. And number three, does it fit my cravings? And like I said, from the science, we know that the the proclivity is to reach for the sugary and fatty foods to sort of scratch that itch. And I think that's why we see so many people in this day and age going towards that food. It's that instant gratification. And there's a very real pressure from your body to give into it as well. Mm. I think that says a lot about lifestyles in general. Yeah. Brian, don't they? So it's like taste and craving, sorry, because it's kind of like your 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 sense of taste only comes from the craving, really. Mm. And it's like once you stop, it's like the whole microbiome thing. When you just, if you stop eating loads of sugar, you don't crave sugar at all. That, that, that woman who got a poo transplant was someone who was like massively overweight, and then she came out of um, uh, stomach surgery, had a poo transplant, and she was just like craving donuts, just craving like high sugar food. Oh, what? So, so when you have when you have stomach surgery, you have to have like um, like they they basically wash out your stomach, so all of your microbiome. So you have a microbiome, it's like loads of bacteria in your stomach, and it controls basically your brain. So it sends out signals that can permeate the blood brain barrier. Mm. And then um, this woman had stomach surgery. She had her stomach washed, and they basically take some poo and they put it back inside, so it, your stomach can sort of colon can function. I don't think it was stomach surgery. I think it was colon, actually. And I think they got the poo samples mixed up with a woman who was, like, massively overweight, um, put in this, like, microbiome of just, like, all this bacteria that was just uh, high sugar, like, it fed off sugar. And she just came out of the surgery and just instantly addicted to sugar, just, like, came out and was just, like, hunting down Snickers, hunting down, like, donuts, like, high sugar food. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's crazy. It's like, again, the whole free will thing. We think we're choosing, oh, I really crave a Snickers. It's like, well, you don't. You don't actually, you're not processing that thought. You're you're being told to do that. Mm. And then you're pretending that you have a thought about it. Yeah, it's like, how in control really are you? Yeah, not, not, not at all. Not at all. Mm. Yeah, I think it's important to make the distinction between like, refined sugar and natural sugar as well because i think sugar yeah, yeah. Gets, sugar sugar gets uh demonized like quite regularly it's like if we're talking about refined sugar like you said in donuts and stuff like that then absolutely because the the way that our body breaks it down is a completely different process whereas if you're eating like you've got natural forms of sugar like even like in milk and cheese and stuff like that there's there's natural forms of sugar yeah. and particularly like, if you're eating fruit or something like that it's 
a much better way to, to kind of get it into yourself because it's digested a lot slower and you you your your body doesn't kind of have a total spaz attack when you eat it so i think it's definitely addictive no matter what state it's in but i think it's the refined sugars that seem to be a really big problem in today's society yeah i a lot of people don't really see the problem in it but it's like well given given the fact that it can fucking harm you it just seems like you're forgetting that socratic question of well it's not just about living it's about living well and like well maybe it's not because like i think they think living well is immediate gratification but yeah it just seems like people have forgotten that well you don't need to satisfy every craving that's not what living well means like have patience or self-control and it's and it, yeah i i get why that's really really difficult and I, i'm i mean i eat loads of fucking ice cream and shit like just just to say that like we all make nutritional mistakes um well, i certainly do at least i wouldn't say that's a mistake though I'd, and and again i think we're, we're on we're on the cusp of a really lengthy discussion here because like that that's a that's a whole nother beast but yeah okay i i think i know where you're going with that y- yeah like it's fine to have stuff like that yeah, and there's no single food that's bad. It's diets that are bad. Yeah, and it's just the way I look at it. Th- th- so when, when I try and explain this, because if, if people have heard previous podcasts, I'll know it's, it's a lot of engineers that I deal with. It's British Gas. We provide the occupational health for basically. So a lot of these guys have not got a scooby about nutrition. They've never been taught to about it, and they don't particularly care about it. So I kind of have to break it down to them in a way that they can understand. You've got the way I see it, three main components to nutrition. You've got nutrition for health. That includes physical health and psychological health. You've got nutrition for weight management. Um, the reason I separate that is because that can also be for aesthetic reasons, not just kind of like health reasons. And that can mm-hmm. be gaining weight as well. Like a bodybuilder may want to gain weight or you know somebody may want to lose weight if they're obese or whatever. And then you've also got nutrition for sports and physical performance. And again, I separate that because that's not the whole population. Not everybody's eating because they play a sport. Some people just eat because they, they need to eat. So you, you kind of have to look at each of them as its own beast, really. Because if we're going to have a conversation about what's healthy there's lots of doors that we can open there. But if we want to talk about specifically nutrition for weight management, then there's that, it's actually a lot more simple than people think. And there's a lot of things that are sort of condemned that shouldn't be condemned if we're looking at it purely through the lens of of weight management. So you like to eat ice cream, then that's that's your kind of thing. Grillin, what about you? Have you have you got any sort of like foods um, that you'll go to? Any sort of guilty pleasures, I guess, would be much garlic bread really if i had some just for the podcast now <laughs> although not not a whole not a whole baguette though i only had half a baguette and i might just have the other half later on Sick. sugars natural as possible so I, I normally just have fruit um when you when you look nutritionally at fruits per 100 grams we're talking anything from sort of 10 to 15 grams of that product is sugar Whereas you look at things like, you know, chocolate, biscuits, we're talking a third to half of their contents alone, particularly minimum cocoa solids, milk, chocolate. Over half of that is just sugar. And I'd be very surprised if many people in this country actually knew that. If you ask them to name the primary ingredient of chocolate, I bet you most people wouldn't say sugar, but but it is milk, chocolate. Mm. No, let's keep it fairly sort of, healthy yeah what about sam i know i know you like to have a cheat day every now and again what's what's your go-to 
It's fucking everything, mate. And cheat day. Just eat everything. Just eat children. Eat signposts. You need more iron in your diet. Yeah, probably just mince pies, actually. <laughs> oh, nice. Actually, yeah, yeah. Just eat like three or four packs of mince pies. In one sitting. What, like, not near Christmas? Just so I can eat mince pies? Yeah, or like bake for parts. Hmm. Like, I have like a cheat day where I just eat like some fucking cookies and shit. What I find quite cool about the, the cheat days is like psychological because you have all this like instant gratification. You're like, yeah, oh, getting this treat is going to be so good. And you're like, oh, it's actually just feel exactly the same as before, which I think is like mm. part of why people, yeah, should, should, should just give in to like that instant gratification because when you actually get the instant gratification, you're like, oh, it's kind of wank. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why it's not just about physical health. I think it, it the physical health stuff links in over to mental health. And I think even broader than all those things, just the way we think in the most general terms. So one of the things that he identifies quite early on in the book is um, all this like syncretic, contradictory thinking that people have about like well, nutrition would be uh, one example where people think certain things are healthy and other things aren't when that's clearly not true. One of the ones that sticks in my mind is like vegans not eating honey. just doesn't seem to make any sense. Right. Why not? Because it's an animal product, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but the principle of being a vegan would be to limit the damage you're doing. Oh, sorry, sorry. So vegans do eat honey? No, vegans don't eat honey. Yeah, cool. I was going to say, yeah, that makes sense. The vegans not eating honey makes sense because it's, you know, it's like food for other animals. Yeah, but it's it's not causing the animal suffering, which is... Well, it is taking food away. It's like eating chicken eggs. I get I get it. I get how you could be like, well, that's... It's like milk in a cow. People think milk in a cow is like some sort of process where you fucking put needles in its veins and like drain its bioessence. <laughs> but it's just literally just putting some suction cups on a cow that is producing milk. But, and they don't drink milk. So I, I understand that. The thing is, thing is with bees is that they need to have their honey, uh, excess honey taken away. It's health, healthier for bees and bee populations. That's the same with cows. Like they need to be milked. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's that's another one. I think it gets a little bit... Um, there Obviously, it depends what kind of farm you're going to. We'll, we'll get into that anyway. But I, I guess another one I'm thinking of is like uh, people buying large free-range eggs. Because it's like large eggs generally fucking, they hurt the chicken's ass when they come out. So you're worried about buying free range, but then you go for the largest one. It just seems like quite a contradiction. Or people getting like half calf cappuccinos and stuff. So like, you're, you're, oh, no, no skinny cappuccino. <laughs> Rich, Richard Dawkins going insane about skinny cappuccino, which is not Richard funny. Dawkins. This fucking what's his name? Um, conservative bloke, Peter Hitchens. Peter Hitchens, yeah, legend. I'll link that in the show notes. <laughs> that's, that's literally perfect because he's going like, well, you you say I'll have a skinny cappuccino with a caramel shot, so like not understanding the not understanding the the way that your body breaks down sugar and fat. So you're saying the thing that's it's like it, it is literally like free range where you're saying the thing that sounds better because you're virtue signaling mm. i'm buying a free range egg because the chicken is outside for two hours and that and then brought inside for it's like fucking holocaust like absolute life of hell and then to like lay eggs it's just it's literally just virtue signaling yeah it can be yeah 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 i think it is most of the time this is the problem that I have with a lot of kind of modern diets, I think particularly veganism as well. I mean, as Sam said, I think a lot of it 
falls into virtue signaling but with veganism i've had quite a few so we, we've actually got um well one of them's left the company now but we had two um two vegan girls at my company and both of them are really nice so i could have like a okay and how did you know that how did you know they were vegan do you know what i swear to god um i won't name her but one of them didn't actually mention it i actually yeah no i swear to god she was she's actually she's actually really chill about it um so uh but the the other one i mean we believe you like it's 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 possible no uh, i don't know man it's pretty rare i I don't think it is though because every single vegan like 100 vegans has been like just enjoying my vegan toast and it's like toast is vegan <laughs> I don't say I would join my fucking vegan glass of water and post a fucking photo to Instagram of me eat my vegan rice. Yeah, I think uh, no, but both both of them were chill about it, and it was it, it was some interesting conversations. But I think some of the things that I sort of posed to them was when I got them to describe to me why they were a vegan. Many of the examples that they gave me were like, "Wow, the conditions of this slaughterhouse," or "Oh, battery hens and stuff like that." And it's okay. It's like, well, it sounds to me like much of your the much of your kind of ethical reasonings for being vegan are predicated upon the meat industry and battery farming and stuff like that. It's like not all animal products are produced that way. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of really non-intrusive ways, like you mentioned about kind of keeping on top of the honey that bees produced in order to help them, helping cows out, you know, by actually sort of milking them safely and not in a distressing way. And, you know, there's plenty of people that practice genuinely ethical means of extracting animal products at that point yeah. are you still completely against it and i never really got a firm answer out of them on that. i have had a firm answer and the, the the firm answer that i've often got is and don't get me wrong i think veganism is out of all of them the, the most consistent and the best one but they say well i have to just throw myself onto this label because i can't do it case by case because i haven't got the time or the resources and the label's just easier um i know that there are inconsistencies in the way and i and i I don't know if that's exactly a cop-out. I think it's a good effort, really, compared to most people who, I guess, don't think about it at all. But I think sometimes you can just fall into these traps of thinking that these labels are consistent. They're just not. Sometimes they aren't helpful. The problem with that is I would say I would need to see them making a meaningful contribution to like actually rejecting some of the inaccurate vegan marketing and media that I've seen put out there. There's some real sort of like guilt-trippy stuff that's put out there that's just not representative of t- at all like they'll, they'll put stuff out there and it'll be like like i said like a picture of like a cow in some awful conditions it's like okay well that's cherry picked that that is one example of how people keep cattle can be and it's all my favorite one is uh the cartoons of like a woman put up to all the milking thing uh and it's just like <laughs> right a, it, a cow is not a woman it's, it's a bovine i thought i drew that in fucking private <laughs> What you're not, you wouldn't draw a woman like chewing the cud, like eating a load of grass for four hours straight and staring at the wall. It's a whole different situation. It's like you, you, your attacks like really misplaced. Speaking of which, uh, another inconsistent food, is, um, which I think is fucking ridiculous, is these weirdos that eat breast milk ice cream. Excuse me. Just jump in on, on veganism. Can I just can I, can I just get the fucking boot in on vegans? Because they're just like, oh yeah, we're all about like you know saving the animals. So that's why we're on about 
cutting down like fucking rainforest and then turning it into soybean farms and then covering those soybean farms with pesticides so that when it runs off into the river it creates hypoxic dead zones that kills all the animals in that river <laughs> and then when we come to harvest that plant we just get a massive combine harvester that just mows down all the animals that are in those fields yeah. so we make we make huge patches of the earth completely inhabitable for, for like animal life yeah I, I totally agree so you use that meat slurry to f- fuel the machines again for the next hour. Yeah, it's just, it's just so hypocritical. Like, like there is no good way to feed this many people. Like all all sources of food, apart from maybe like these things that they've sort of done with like cell growing meats and labs, which looks like crazy promising for the future. But it's like there is no like clean way to eat. There is no virtuous way. Like all food has like a sort of dark side to it. It all has like a waste product. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So that, that basically, the way he talks about veganism. Um, obviously, I've mentioned before, he's a virtuosist. So he's going to say, obviously, the label veganism isn't entirely helpful because it doesn't successfully navigate the problem. The better way to think about it is to think about the virtue of compassion and use that virtue as a guide. So how compassionate is this farming and how compassionate is this this particular like farm i know it's 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 really difficult to apply that farm by farm but it's more accurate than just yeah, blanking and labeling everyone is the same blanket rule the thing with the blanket rule is it oh, just it just opens up so many different problems kind of do you think this is death of god as again because <laughs> i think it is i think veganism is just a replacement I think, I think it generally is like a tribal replacement for religion I think I think it certainly can be because there's such a strong moral element. Yeah. And actually, he, he talks he talks about that. He talks about the sanctity of life. That it's this transcendental idea that vegans and veget well vegetarians he goes after most actually because I think he quite likes vegans and to be honest, so do I. It's just it's just these moralistic statements that that aren't aren't quite right. Well, the problem the problem is like you're not, you're not my tribe. Th- there's no reason for a vegan to refuse unrequested food that's otherwise going to be wasted. If someone slaps meat in front of you, don't waste it. That's almost more unethical. Yeah, it's like the, 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 I know. I know you want this like blanket rule of religion almost, but if you really think about it, that won't help. That's why it's, it's better to talk about compassion because it's like if you just think about it in terms of compassion, it's not not compassionate to. Yeah, that takes hard work. It takes hard work to find out and think about what you believe rather than just saying that's another virtue. Rather than just yeah. saying I'm a vegan. And then using that as like a sort of replacement for having a personality or finding out about yourself. Veganism itself doesn't actually do anything that most other people don't. Like there's no fundamental difference between veganism and anything else because it's saying that there's a sanctity of life, but that's not true. And no vegan would say there is because we all kill bacteria. Yeah. yeah. We, all, we all kill insects where does your definition of a life that matters end yeah you 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 can literally keep going with that right until you get down to amoeba and stuff and it's like does it only matter when it's a cute doggo that you're able to see clearly or like do the Mm. others not matter so yeah well there's a really interesting thing he talks about is like domestic cats just in the u.s alone they kill billions of like birds and mammals every year and it's like by keeping a cat it just just because you feed it, it will still go out and do that. So it's like by keeping cats, you are effectively doing that. It's like it's just yeah, you're, you're keeping a murderer that you know is a murderer. <laughs> yeah. A question I posed to these girls at my work, which they didn't really like, give me an answer, um, was given that one of the the leading theories for why we have 
become as aware and as smart as we are today oh shit yeah is that we we unlocked the power of cooking meat and consuming cooked meat which allowed us to trade intestinal length for brain efficiency and brain power would you say and 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 given that that is probably the only reason that you're able to be here today and be preaching to me about the fact that i shouldn't be eating animal products would you say that that was a necessary evil and they didn't really know how to respond to that. And I don't think they kind of like got the question, but it's like, if you look back at our history, like how we have evolved as a species, how we have kind of won the game of evolution, I guess, or been winning the game of evolution, should I say. I'm much less sympathetic to that. It's like saying, well, we needed to kill each other. We needed religion. I think it's a different context now. And uh, uh, we have more means at our disposal than we did back then. I think we're just so fucking weak that we're having arguments about this. Just as like a just as like a morally bereft and bankrupt fucking society, that are one of our biggest arguments is about whether you should eat a steak or not. No, I, I think I think that's that that's the sign of progress. We, we're getting down to the shitty problems now. No, it's fucking no, it's not. No, it's it, it's so not. It's just we're so monocultural that we're looking for massive problems in tiny problems. I don't care if someone eats nothing but lentils. That's cool. Please do that. But that that's fine. Like, there, there are bigger things in the world than, like, veganism versus eating meat. And the fact that people will find this as, like, a way to have a conflict is just, like, fucking grim. I guess I guess if it's if it's your main thing, your main thing is veganism, I, I guess I could see that. A lot of people it is. Like, there are, there yeah, are yeah, yeah. who's, like, their main thing. And it's, like, you go on Twitter and, and this, this isn't me. This is, like, I listened to fucking Bro Joke and he was saying, like, there'd be, like, fight between like vegan lizzie number six versus like meat eater carnival diet barry and it is just like watching like two and, and like they would both have the word vegan or carnival diet in their twitter handle and it is i, I, I get you i get you it's yeah, just yeah. like it's just like watching two like religious factions having a war in the same way that like some people are more christian than others some people are like diehard vegans or like fucking meat eaters yeah i think i'd be a bit more sympathetic if it was a lot of people's sort of secondary or even tertiary goals but for a lot of people to have it as their primary life goal i i, I do get that there are more first and more important issues in the world right now given the last few months but also there's, there's a far greater issue with food in that just a lot of it meat or not is wasted overall well, yeah, massive. That's a huge crime. I mean, there's about six million litres of kind of equivalent of food mass is wasted by households in the United Kingdom a year and 1.9 million by the food industry itself. No. Yeah. So this is why he's bringing it back to virtues. This is why he's like, well, fuck, fuck the label veganism. It, yeah. It's not helpful. Fuck vegetarian. Just think in terms of compassion. So he's thinking about like pain and suffering. So ju- just judge it. Go to an abattoir. Fucking take the time to learn how it's done and then make decisions based on that. It's like, there's no reason, if you, if you use pain or suffering more accurately, because pain is just the alarm response, he says like, well, you could, you could prick somebody with a pin a uh, hundred times, but if they're, an am, if they're an amnesiac, then it's just pain. But if you prick somebody who's, who has memory, it suddenly becomes suffering. After like 10 minutes, you wouldn't be able to take any more of it. So it's like, suffering is much more different. And it's like, you could even judge it by the animal then. Because it's like, a shrimp probably can't even feel pain, but there's there's no reason why a pig should be in pain at all when it's slaughtered. You could raise a pig compassionately, almost as a pet, and there are places that do. There are vegetarian farmers that have this exact mindset. I think you, you're right about the religion thing. They 
tar a whole industry with the same brush and think that the people that work in abattoirs don't understand animals or understand or have any sort of empathy with them. And it's like, it's actually the opposite. My, my, my beef, if you forgive the fucking pun, is like they'll, they'll tar the industry without knowing anything about it. So it's like, I remember listening to Nani talk to someone about veganism and they were like, oh, the way cows are kept are disgusting. And Nani's just got like cattle and he's like, we treat those cows like amazingly. And I know that he's like actually like a fucking high-end farm compared to like some horrible Brazilian dingy thing. It's when people start mouthing off and tiring an entire industry without knowing anything about it. It's like when people mouth off about nature and they haven't even been in nature. Like they're just like, they've watched a David Attenborough documentary and think they fucking know everything about everything. Yeah. So one of the things he goes into quite a lot of detail about is keeping an animal in captivity and thinking sort of, I think what a lot of people who are vegan end up doing is they project their human experiences onto an animal. So they would say like being in a confined space is discomfort. It's like, well, for a cow during winter, it's really not. They prefer the smaller space. Big field isn't always what's best for their health. Small groups, big field. No, not at all. If you let them out in the field, it's way bad for them. They'll, They'll be stuck in this muddy shit. They'll hurt themselves. They'll be cold and uncomfortable. They don't like strong winds or rain. If you let goats out as well, they start eating fucking all kinds of poisonous nettles and stuff. And they like they need to be kept inside for their own good a, a lot of the time. And also the idea that like for some reason it's like better to milk a cow by hand. You get some buxom milkmaid on a fucking little stool. <laughs> yeah. uh, ye, old, ye, old, ye old pale. It's because it's romanticized. It's the same. Yeah. It's the same. Oh, that bears like blue. It's not. It's just a fucking mm-hmm. biological killing machine that would just eat you. I blame Disney films. Yeah, legit. Like, I wouldn't even think about it. There's also the idea, and I think this is inconsistent as well. Of like, when um, I don't, I don't really want to like just rip on veg- vegetarians and vegans um too much because, like, like I said, yeah, they are the ones. No, they are the ones thinking about it a lot more than most. It's just, it's not the full hog. So, because they're the ones, with the only people. Uh, I didn't realize that was a pun. We've made like four amazing food puns. Uh, but anyway, um, this idea that you have to kill something yourself, or you have to be, you have to be willing to do it to eat it. It's like, well, that's no. You can be squeamish. It's like you don't have to be willing or able to do open heart surgery. Think that it's a good thing in principle. <laughs> it's bad. I would say so when I when I was younger I used to go out um I used to go out hunting with my dad a lot obviously we haven't got like a lot to hunt in the UK so it's not quite as cool as hunting there but you know I used to hunt like rabbits and stuff like that um I have shot deer bastard I, I was all yeah but th- this is the thing though man like I was always taught to respect them and to not like so what one thing that dad always taught me if you can't kill it with one hit don't shoot at all like if you don't think that you're going to kill it dead there and then, so it doesn't suffer, don't bother at all. Um, it taught me to kind of be respectful of the fact that when you kill an animal, there's an awful lot of it that's there. So it teaches you to not waste, to actually try and think of uses for the whole body. Sorry, just to clarify, you, were you eating these afterwards? Oh yeah, hundred percent. The only thing, the only that, things, the only cool. things I've ever shot and not killed are pests that were having a uh, effect on the kind of the ecosystem of my parents like small holding so like rats that we weren't able to eat due to like problems with disease and stuff like that so rats would come in and they would like literally gnaw the chicken's legs and stuff like it was really bad so we had a really bad problem with rats at one point so obviously they had to die um, so that we could look after our livestock but we weren't able to eat them apart from that 
every time I've killed something, I've eaten it. Yeah, well, you're trying to preserve the quality of life and you're trying to minimize suffering. Yeah, precisely. Really weird thing to think about, actually. But um, I think we condemn hunting mainly for the psychology, not the impact that it has. Like, because, because potentially, if you think about it, it's a much swifter death than any other kind of death. Like you said, if you can shoot it in one clean shot. But it's like, the only thing that's just being added there is like our interference, our moral agency. If you think about how an animal would normally die, it'll either be ill or eaten. And th- both of those things are fucking horrible compared to that. Yeah. A rabbit certainly doesn't seem to be thinking about tomorrow. It's not making plans. So uh, it, he actually exemplifies this with a really kind of weird story uh, where a woman was walking along with a goat and um, sounds like the start of a joke, but they, they're all like petting it and it's, it's fucking great and it's just like grazing on grass and then they string it up to, to kill it because they're like, well, we have to fucking eat this goat. And as it's being strung up and the knife's too blunt and so they're trying to like, they're trying to kill it and they can't and then they let it go because they're like, well, this knife's going to be too blunt. We can't, let's not like hurt it too much before it dies. And after that moment, as soon as it's let down, it just carries on completely. It's like, this idea that like animals aren't oblivious to this, it's like thinking that they're, they're existentially worried, that they're worried about their own mortality. Like He goes to an abattoir and he's like, the pigs aren't worried because they don't know what's going to happen. You aren't robbing them of, any, of anything to kill them earlier in life than they would get to a later age. It's like, I, I don't know how I feel about that, but elements of that seem to check out for me. Um, I, I think there's a huge moral ravine between sort of grisly trophy hunting of an endangered elephant. And like we were talking about in the Varsadine episode, um, like sustainably, and I think what's most importantly, reluctantly killing boar to preserve an ecosystem yeah, or or hunting for food. It's like th- these things are, t- are very different to trophy hunting, to tar them with all the same brush. It's like a good life and a clean end is the best thing that any life can hope for. Uh, but especially uh, one that doesn't think about think about tomorrow. You know, it's the, it's the intention, I think, that we're judging. And it's what kind of person the trophy hunter is. So going back to virtue and like what kind of society we allow to take shape through that. But yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's a relatively nuanced view of hunting. And I hadn't really come across it before because normally it's, I just hear shouting. Yeah. Um, I would say, so trophy hunting is one that's brought up a lot. There's actually not that many people out there um, in the hunting community, from what I've heard, who will hunt an animal and then let it go to waste afterwards. So the idea of trophy hunting is like, oh, they, they shot a buck, so like a you know, like a male deer or whatever, and they, they put his head up on the wall and it's like, well, usually when they do that, they do actually eat the rest of it. They will they will chop it up and, and cook it, you know, they they'll, they'll, they'll consume the venison. There's not tons of examples from what I've seen. I'd say the majority of hunters do actually eat what they kill. Um, hunters are massively responsible for the vast majority of forestry management around the world. So a lot of kind of forests, particularly in the US, I know more about it in the US and Canada, really, because I kind of looked into it because I'm, I'm quite into a guy called, um, I've forgotten it, Cameron Haynes? Yeah, Cameron Haynes. Yeah, Cameron Haynes, who's, who's a bow hunter and, and he's sick. And I, was, I kind of got into it through, uh, through him. And just listening to kind of how he talks about like what a hunter's responsibility is. And like you said, it's about making sure that when you do kill an animal, you're taking what you need what you need only that it's that it is meeting a swift end to minimize suffering 
and that you're also consciously thinking about the environment that you're in and if there's any way that you can act that may benefit i.e you know taking part in coals and things i mean if you look at forest of dean like what the wild boar do they absolutely fuck up the forest man they they turf it up because they'll go looking for truffles mm. and stuff they cause so much damage to other living plants and things around them so the cull is a way of kind of preserving that balance yeah and it, it's reluctant it's not it, people imagine it's this horrible like malicious thing it's like it, it couldn't be further from the truth no i think hunters and people who deal with animals in those sort of contexts they understand animals on a level that a lot of people with a more abstract idea of nature don't and yeah. i think that's why they respect the animals because they understand what an animal is animals don't have a sense of time and this is something this is a bit of a red bull um he says we're scared that life is inevitably pointless and vegetarianism attempts to cure this by telling us that animals also share in those exact same anxieties that we do and we kind of want to say that no their life isn't pointless that they have a sanctity of life. That's fucking sick. That's chucking like a weird religious idea. This this weird, like he says, like a transcendent value onto animals. So we're trying to overcompensate by populating the world with these weird spiritual ideas. But that's assuming really that meat eating is just nihilism, and it isn't. It's it's not harsh materialism. So there's a way to go between them. It's like, because I mean, vegetarianism without compassion, it's like buying battery hen eggs or intensively reared cow milk. It's worse than compassionately yeah. eating meat. Have you seen all the research about, you know, what plants can feel and stuff as well? Mm, and how yeah. plants talk. Like, there's, there's a lot of research coming out that, like, plants are a lot more conscious uh, than we first believed because it's a lot harder to see. It's like things like trees communicate and they, they can tell different. Yeah. There's a fucking banging book by Sam Harris's wife, um, who I do know the first name of, but I'm terribly sexist, so I'm just going to call her Sam Harris's wife. <laughs> yeah, it's Annika Harris. She talks about like panpsychism and it's like, is a rock conscious? And then, like, well, is a human conscious? At uh, what point does it become conscious? Does it jump like a. Is there like a, is there like a consciousness jump where suddenly it has enough neural circuitry to become conscious? And it's like, well, by that extent, like plants are conscious. So you're not being any more ethical by eating like a kumquat than you are by eating a deer. Yeah. I mean, veganism is just a matter of degrees. Like I said, yeah. it's not a different principle. It's just you draw the line somewhere else. And like, I don't think that's enough to start screaming at people and, and judging. It's like we just have different lines. 100% agree. It was something I, it was something I touched upon. If you guys can cast your mind back, I think it was the, um, was it spectating nature and observing chaos episode? Episode yeah, yeah. five or six or that something. Yeah, we did oh, that my, ages ago. Yeah, uh, yeah that's my, because my, my dissertation was on it, uh, animal ethics. Yeah, we did a we did a shitty episode on it in series yeah, one. So what I talked about there, I don't know if you can remember, was that why do people see animals as different to plants? Like when we, because I think I actually touched upon what you're talking about there, Sam, if I remember rightly, like the, the fact that we know uh, that plants can exhibit a sort of pain response and we know that they have ways of communicating with each other so why why does our sort of subjective view of what is valuable life and what isn't valuable life why is that something that seems to be perpetuated by vegetarians and veganism why can we not just accept the fact that as humans to eat we in some way shape or form need to exterminate another life be that a plant be that an animal whatever some a life needs to end 
for us to eat. Mm. Why can we not just accept that, get on with it, have respect for the things around us, look after the plants, look after the animals, treat them with respect. And when it's time for us to eat, put the most sensible way that minimizes suffering and damage to the surrounding environment to do so, i.e. not fucking killing 10 cows for like one family to eat and then throwing out half the, the fucking meat that goes to waste, but actually taking only what you need rather than like fucking like totally fucking up like an entire patch of land when you don't really need it. Like Sam said, like a lot of things that are mm. produced for vegans are, are massively detrimental to the environment. So realistically they are making a choice there as well. They are kind of making a choice about how much destruction they are willing to make in order to fill their belly. And it's that, it's, it's that sort of balance between chaos and order then really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, when you think about land use, uh, vegetarianism is one of the worst things environmentally you can do yeah. because there's so much land that you can't grow veg on. So like, you'd have to rip up a lot more to feed the population if everyone just turned vegetarian. And it's like, also, if you're vegetarian, well, that means you're not fishing as well. So basically, you just turn the whole fucking world into crop space. And you like, there are some places you can't do that on. You have to have cattle there and not crops because crops won't grow. So you really have to have a balanced diet. I think I think you can limit the amount of meat you have, and like I said, like the, go for yeah. things like free range. If, if so long as you are aware of what that means, yeah, what, does, what does free range actually mean? Because it doesn't really mean anything. There's a subjective grading of it. Well, yeah, it's 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 like free range sounds good. It's like fair trade. It's like oh cool. Was or well, it's nice to know that all other fruit is dealt on an unfair trade basis. <laughs> there's there's like a, there's like a quota that they have to meet, I think, with uh, with both fair trade and with free range. So um, there's ways that they grade it. And I can't remember the grading system because my mum was telling me about it ages ago. But basically, they're, not all free ranges are equal. There are some places that proclaim to have free range. But basically, the animals will be kept in a very certain amount of space or maybe let outside for a very certain amount of time a day. And there'll be quite strict regulations. So I don't know the specifics of it. But all I know is that if you buy something free range on, it doesn't mean that your chicken has been wandering free, fucking singing the sound of music with uh, with what's her face. Like it's not, it's not like that all the time. Julie Garland. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've had a total fucking mental blank then. But but you know I what know. I mean. I think we we idealise that. What's weird is that some animals can't be free ranged because of the way they're bred, they have to be kept in a confined space, and unfortunately, because of the way we've bred them, we actually have to bring food to them. Yeah, it's like, do you just euthanize those or do you, what do you do there? And I think it becomes a lot muddier and a lot fucking harder. Well, if we do, the first thing we should all do is euthanize like chihuahuas and euthanize sausage dogs and euthanize. Yeah, again, one of of those, one of those inconsistencies. Where the vegans like, oh, I really love animal rights. And then they've got like one of those dogs with skin on its face that's like, you're literally forcing an animal that's higher sentient being to fucking live in constant suffering and pain because you think it looks so cute. It's like, well, cool, yeah, let's start by freeing your fucking dog of pain by not not mutating a wolf so it looks like that because that's horrible. Oh, yeah, it's Julie Andrews, by the way. I just had a quick look. It's not Julie Garland. Julie Julie Garland. (laughs) Who the fuck is Julie Garland? Can someone look this up? Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. That's who Julie Garland is, yeah. Oh, shit, yeah, she is. 
she got fucking right, yeah, fed yeah. nothing but amphetamines and cigarettes for like four years. It's horrible. Yeah, she wasn't free range in the end, was she? <laughs> yeah, unsat, mate. Another label that doesn't really make any sense is this whole idea of buying local. Mm-hmm. The idea that uh, homegrown and local stuff obviously does increase the appreciation of food in general. If you know where something's grown, it's great. And it's you know, that's common sense, but it is it is worth noting. But I think it's deeper than, oh, it, 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 it's just close. It's, it's the proximity. Because it's more about the transparent sharing of knowledge. And he basically says it's about the virtue of interdependence. So that's the real appeal of allotments. Because a lot of people sort of cultishly think, well, I have to grow everything myself and not talk to anyone. That that would be the best way of doing food. I would grow everything in my fucking <laughs> That's garden. That's the fucking dream, mate. Not talking to anyone yeah. ever. <laughs> <laughs> like at best, okay. Well, I'll have I'll have um, I'll go down to the fucking the same street I live in, and that's somehow better than it. And like, if not, then I'll buy British, and that's probably better. It's like, well, that's not really true. That's not a continuum. It's it's not about being close to you um so he says like there's no need for a fisherman to start farming there are certain places that like are better to do food than others so if you if you bought local potatoes in london that's a fucking (laughs) stupid idea because the the yields in essex are shit that's the closest place you can get them you're much better off actually getting them from proper potato country because um, this thing about green miles, it's like, well, green miles don't mean shit. Like, Sorry. what you want is that you want them coming from the places with the most yield and places that, re- like, a lot of places rely on exports as well. A lot of places rely on imports. Uh, it's not necessarily economically good. It's also, it's not an excuse for shit food as well. Like, if food's just shit, uh, you know, it's almost like this weird jingoistic, I won't say racism, but it's, it's just like, oh, I've got to eat British food no matter what. It's like, well, you wouldn't have <laughs> British tea, mate. Like, tea, tea comes from a place that tea comes from because they're good at making tea. It's like, you, you, how far do you want to take that principle? You can't just like start building heat lamps and growing everything down the corner. Yeah, exactly. English breakfast tea is not English breakfast tea. It's just something that we basically marketed as. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. What's that noise? Is it is it the quiet is it the quiet nature again? I don't know, it's like like weird scribbly noises. I think it's just the I think it's just the quality of your phone. But yeah, um Slab. He fucking got you. So yeah, I, I think what what he says the real appeal of this obsession with locality actually is it's about a human level of interaction. Um he says like allotments are fucking great because the story yeah, it's just the narrative, isn't it? It's, it's just the yeah. narrative. And it's it's a way into food. It's like it's a mutual and social interdependence rather than just being totally in, in it's also a marketing tactic for selling shit food. <laughs> yeah. Like, like it's it's let's, let's be honest, the main reason like it's like with these adverts where people are like, Hey, we're really standing with you and it's like, Well well no, you literally your business, your main reason is to make profit and make money. So like buying British is a good way of like selling and making sure you have like a consumer base. Let me, mm. let me put this one to you then. So 
I'm, I'm guessing we've all been camping here and bear, bear with me because in my head this analogy makes sense but I'm guessing we've all been camping <laughs> we have yeah so w- when you go camping and you, you you make your camping food in the evening I don't know about you guys but in the past I'd bring like you know a can of beans maybe like some sausage whatever usual shit that I would eat at home anyway when I go camping I'm cooking it on some like shitty stove out in the middle of nowhere it tastes twice as good. Now, I think partly that is because I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm really hungry because I've maybe been hiking all day. But I think a massive element of what as well is you're enjoying it because of the narrative. You're enjoying it because of the story that you followed, going out, camping out, I've cooked this myself, and blah, blah, blah. I think it's the same thing with when you buy local. When you go to like a farm shop a cute little farm shop and uh, you know in the country and you've seen where it's all grown and you see the tractor out in the fields and it's the idyllic little set and mm. you're buying into that story so when you eat it you'll be thinking about that and i know for a fact that when i was younger when we'd be having dinner sometimes mum and dad would sort of proudly announce at the table oh that's liz's sausages from down the road they're from herbert and then you know explaining the story of where it came from which Absolutely. I think is nice, and but I think that's massively where a lot of the enjoyment comes from. It you, you're buying into a narrative a lot of the time. Yeah. So he says it's about that's actually about sharing and about being connected to something bigger than yourself. Um, because we're not connected to like faceless brands or like Heinz baked beans. But I, I am buying <laughs> today to from Coles. Buying your own shit. Uh, uh, do you guys ever grow your own stuff? Have you ever like owned an allotment or anything, or like start growing your own herbs or anything? Oh, like that? Yeah, yeah, I've gone to Spuddies before. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I have in the past. So, so Karen is just uh, confessing about buying and yeah. growing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> On tape. <laughs> yeah, so, so what do you guys grow? We can't fucking grow anything. But like, you're just like veg, like allotment shit, carrots, back when we had a garden. That's the problem. No one's got a fucking garden because like space is premium. Mm. So it's like, that would be really good if everyone could have a garden, but it's just like not physically possible. I think it's possible to grow more than people think. Yeah, yeah I saw I saw a really cool um, guy called um, oh fuck, was he? Uh, I think he goes by the name of like the the gangster gardener or something like that. He's basically a dude from. Uh, from sounds, sounds really cool. Yeah, it's it's is he a, is he a superhero? There's, no, there's, there's a lot of marketing behind it and stuff, but basically he's from Compton, I think, in in Los Angeles. He's from a very urban area, and he basically teaches people in an urban environment how to grow vegetables, how to grow their own stuff in a confined amount of space. So he was like teaching people how to like use uh, like drawers from like an old chest of drawers or whatever, an old cabinet, filling those with soil and then just putting them outside your back doorstep and using those as like uh, beds to like grow potatoes in or whatever. And it worked as well. I thought it was was really cool. So like there's ways around it. And so so the first person walks by and goes, sick, I'll have those. Yeah, of course. Like, and I'm guessing it probably worked better if you had like some sort of balcony, like private balcony or something like that. Um, And there's a lot, there's a lot of people Mm. in London who have balcony gardens and stuff though, from what I've seen, particularly in like the more affluent areas, I guess. But even in some of the uh, poor areas, like I I used to live in Brick Lane, my next door neighbors were Bangladeshi and they used to grow like fucking like, onions and stuff just out on the balcony and it was a communal balcony that i'd like walk out on as well and there'd just be like shit growing like just out on the ledges and stuff so people can find a way i guess it's just it's pretty wholesome when they want to but um grilling really quietly said potatoes in the background while sam was talking so i yeah so what you grow them yourself uh no i have have done before 
Oh, okay. This is, yeah, the soil's a bit of an issue as well. Sort of not only just sort of the space being at a premium, like some you mentioned, but also sort of the gradient of the garden, too much drainage, not enough. The soil type, is it sandy? Is it very clay-based? No, I've got a couple of things before, not much. A few spuddies here and there. It's also more expensive as well, isn't it? It's like onions are what, like 30p? Yeah, they're pretty cheap. But it's like, it's like a hobby, but it's not a solution to food problems. I think it depends. It, it depends on what you're growing. It does depend. Yeah, I think... You have a garden, you have space, you can actually grow some stuff, but it's just like you cannot do it on like an industrial level. Yeah, otherwise, like these, like it's like anything. It's like it's like you opening a burger restaurant, like versus McDonald's. Like the amount that they can save because of the industrialization of the process is like they can just do it so much cheaper. But it, it, it again, it depends on what you're growing. So there are some things that you can prioritize growing in the garden that you will not need as many of to make a filling meal. So obviously, if you like put a fucking load of cucumber seeds out in the little bit of land that you have and all you've got is cucumbers and yeah you're gonna starve like because it's not there's not <laughs> a lot to it whereas if you actually invest like you know you've got a small bit of land it's like okay i'm gonna grow sweet potatoes and you grow some sweet potatoes you've got a really really nutritious source of carbohydrate there and then and then all you need to do is sort of pair that with meat so like and there's some vegetables out there that are like so expensive dude like i'll never like probably one of the greatest periods in my life was when I was living in a hotter climate and I had avocado trees like locally and I would just go and pick my own avocados. And it was amazing because we all know how expensive avocados are in this country. You pay an absolute fortune for them. And that was class. And all right, I realized that wasn't like on my bit of land. I know that was out and about, but it, yeah. when, you've got the, when you've got the convenience of like being able to just go and get it, it definitely does help. And I think during, um, yeah. during the Second World War, there was the old dig for victory, wasn't there? And all right, I know there was a much smaller population back then. But when you think about it, like a lot of people, even people that didn't necessarily have like gardens and stuff, they were able to kind of help themselves out. Maybe not be self-sufficient, but they were... Yeah, they could set they could Yeah, they were able yeah, to yeah, help themselves along the way. And the ones that didn't were able to kind of like barter for stuff as well. Yeah, well, I think it's not just about feeding stuff as well. I think it's actually like I said, like an appreciation and a way of connecting with other people and a way of remembering that that is what it takes to fucking grow things. Uh, so I, I was thinking about uh, Western Cider, actually, Zach. I have a, like a much closer connection with alcohol I drink if I've been to the brewery and I understand the brewing process, especially because uh, Western Cider is quite local to where I grew up. It feels like a part of the heritage there. Yeah, if you're driving on the way there, you drive past a lot of the orchards as well. You, you are kind of seeing, yeah, again, it's the narrative, the start to finish process, wonderfulness of local and everything, all these sort of mm. slogans that people do, not just for the sake of, you know, marketing gimmicks, but people do physically experience on the day itself or just throughout their lives. Yeah. Yeah, so like being appreciative and being connected is just a much better maxim i know it's it, it's more vague but i think that's what it needs because just saying oh local local doesn't it will not help anything it won't help the economy it won't help sustainability it won't help your nutrition even like a lot of locally grown stuff is shit yeah my chicken comes from a mile down the road but it's, it's this new chlorinated stuff by the way but that doesn't matter because it's local <laughs> 
I, I, I disagree. If you're speaking generally, then maybe. But if we talk about, like, look at an individual level, there's lots of places that produce local food. That I would say the quality is noticeably better because what you'll typically find um, with any kind of... Yeah, certain foods. Yeah, yeah and, and, and it, it, again, it depends what you're getting. But also, like, so there's a farm shop just down the road from us. If everybody that went there today started just going and buying their stuff from Tesco instead, they go under, mate. That's a family there. So it, it might not be contributing to the the kind of the, the wider economy as much, but there's still people that have set up a business. And all right, maybe we could argue that maybe they shouldn't have set up the business in the first place or whatever, but still that it's a business that's there that needs custom. And if they if they can provide mm. a good quality service with good quality food at a competitive price. I get the benefit of helping out somebody I know that might actually be struggling compared to the big supermarkets that don't make a lot of money. Connectivity. It's just not a good blanket rule, but it, it's, it's, uh, I think local is generally good. I, I wouldn't disagree. It's just like, I think you have to think about why you like local in the first place. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It kind of leads on to organic, actually. I mean, do, do you have a decent definition of organic, Kieran? Because it it can mean so many things. I mean, obviously, mostly it just means like free of pesticides, healthier, tastier, maybe less damaging to the environment. So my my understanding of like what the term organic is would be not just food products, like agricultural products, because you get products that are organic that aren't actually meant as food. So like, um, all right, hemp oil is a bad example because you can use that in cooking, but. Do you know what I mean? There's there's stuff that is grown on farms that isn't actually soap. I, I think you can have organic soap, yeah. can you? Yeah, right. Exactly. So organic is it refers to the way that uh, some an, an, an agricultural um, thing, a product is grown uh, and processed, um, typically without the use of like p- pesticides, um, GMOs, quite unnatural like um, petrol-based fertilizers. Um, sewage sludge like fertilizers I, I can't remember like all the different types but yeah so it, it, it's usually food that hasn't been grown without the interference of things that aren't really natural it's typically organic food will have very very basic natural good quality soil is typically the environment that it's grown in and that is usually the same argument for why organic food is a superior product i mean i can go into that if you want why having the good soils the, the seeing the better of the two um well i'll i'll say what uh, julian Bagini says and then you okay. can tell me if you agree <laughs> if you want i say he's gay and wrong <laughs> so he basically sets up this dilemma that the small-scale wholesome farming is pretty much just a middle-class luxury yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a hobby in some countries like Buying organic is basically resigning yourself to poverty. And some of the, pla- the only places that are organic are these weird medieval towns that time forgot. And that organic maybe isn't the solution to the world's problems. But obviously the historic context for this is basically that farming was commercialized after the world wars because Europe could barely feed itself. And there was this massive boom after that where people started adopting machines and sprays and supermarkets obviously grew out of that uh, in turn and undercut all the profits by doing what they do best and basically squeezing these farms by the balls. And then to counter that, and this is where organic comes in, farms have tried to stop selling to supermarkets and instead started to supply the local area and said that their stuff is 
organic and like return return to that simpler quainter time which isn't as efficient but it can be much more beneficial in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. most people cite health reasons rather than environmental or ethical for choosing organic i think there's a lot of misconceptions about organic and i i think depending on who you ask you get a different definition as we discussed it depends on the country really there's there's different kind of like free range there's different um different sort of gradings for it i guess like in the uk we have soil association there's quite a well-known um certification for organic produce and if you've got the soil association mark on something you usually know it's a pretty high standard of organic um but like you said it's it's kind of that that trade-off between uh the amount people that are capable of producing because obviously when you're growing organic crops they're a lot more susceptible to um pests they're a lot more susceptible to like various blights that could potentially reduce the yield whereas when you introduce like gmo um pesticides and you know all the crazy weird and wonderful methods they use in non-organic growing you eliminate a lot of that and thereby you massively increase the yield the problem is 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 is, i guess it comes down to the argument of quality over quantity because as you rightly pointed out if you go back in the day everything was organic when you have food that has been absolutely hammered by pesticides petrol-based fertilizers and stuff what you'll often find is that the soil that they're growing can degrade basically the 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 quality of the soil will be nowhere near as good and the soil is actually where the 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 produce gets its its nutrients from its minerals and everything i think the difficulty is can though because like obviously there are some pesticides and sprays that are very good and it's not like the 80s when they were just spraying shit everywhere like it's expensive as well i don't think i don't think they just spray willy-nilly and i also think isn't it true that organic stuff obviously does have a lot of chemicals and sprays anyway it's just they're limited to yeah ones. once again it depends on where you are like some places and and some even like from not just from country to country but also from like company to company i mean there'll be some places that will pride themselves on using absolutely nothing like that and they will use like very very basic natural sort of uh pesticide so quite a common one is um using actual soap like um uh proper soap that uses fatty acids mixing that with water and then using that as like a spray. It doesn't harm the plants at all. It doesn't either harm the soil or anything like that, but it will typically kill things like aphids and stuff like that. So there are ways around it, sure. Yeah, and the main problem, as you pointed out, is so it's residual chemicals and stuff that's left in the soil. Yeah. Because obviously there are traces of everything everywhere, and I think people just have this superstition about that. It, it The problem is the soil more than anything, or like actual harmful chemicals. But even then, like traces don't, or harm you it, it, i think it's i think we've developed a very like over cautious culture about yeah, it yeah i don't know whether the evidence points towards like eating stuff that's been sprayed with pesticides will then you know because pe- pe- people will say like pesticides are carcinogenic and stuff and if you're eating the vegetables that are growing with it you're increasing your risk of cancer i don't know whether that's true or not from what i've seen i would say probably not i'd say it sounds like a bit of a reach but i would say the evidence that um, the the general quality of soil when compared to like uh, organic growing and non-organic growing and when you actually um, if you were, if you're able to look at the nutritional quality of an organic piece of produce compared to one that isn't you will typically find it does contain a lot more there's a lot more that you're getting out of it you can usually taste the difference as well and I know people say that's psychological and it's marketing but for me it's really not I've always grown up around organic food like my mum's an organic freak she grows everything organic and she buys everything organic so I'm really used to it and 
I think I mm. you, you you can you can taste the difference in some of the foods, and you can notice like yeah, like yeah there's, yeah. there's color way. difference as well. Like I know we're going away from like growing plants and vegetables and stuff now, but um, organic chicken eggs are a really good example. So if you feed chickens organic feed, the the color of the yolk completely changes. It's a lot more vibrant. The eggs have got uh, a much more. I don't know. They 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 do just taste better when you're eating organic eggs. So I realized there's this whole, this premium aspect to it. And I think definitely, I mean, in California, Jesus Christ, organic food costs an absolute fortune. Like there's not many supermarkets that stock it. And when you do, you need to take out a fucking mortgage to buy it. It's atrocious. But if you can get past that, if you can get past the fact that it has been hijacked by marketing and people use it as an opportunity to kind of like, uh, as a resurgence of premium agricultural products, if you look at, the the bare bones of it of which is better in terms of quality i would say organic is definitely better in terms of quality from my own experience and also from what i've read about it too but as you as someone pointed out earlier we've got a lot of fucking mouths to feed so are we going to get anal about quality over quantity when if we switch to organic tomorrow there's a likelihood that half the world's crops will be destroyed by pests and blight and stuff and that's a lot of people going hungry when we could control that by using like bioengineered genes and pesticides and things. So, yeah, I think, I think you've got to take into account other things as well, like sustainability. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there are some loopholes in organic as well. Like, so basically, certain medicines to treat cattle uh, would be classed as not organic. So, you're actually, I don't know, it's it just like organic doesn't solve all the problems. Yeah. I think, I think you're right about a lot of the aesthetic things. And like, a lot of these things are all sensible rules of thumb, but they're only ever rules of thumb. And I think that's just the main point he wants to make. It's just like rules of thumb aren't necessarily helpful. No, no, I agree. There's pros and there's pros and cons for both. Hundred percent agree. Yeah. He actually says that it's basically just a big fucking poo for economic demand. Like, not everybody can afford organic. I've only recently really had the luxury of thinking widely about uh, like food choices. I've, you know, as a poor student or you know, being below the poverty line coming from quite a low-income family like I, I never really could but that now that I sort of have that opportunity a lot more I, I do think there's a slight cop-out as well on my behalf because I, I think there are ways you can be ethical within a budget as well which I which I, I do have tried to do like I've always limited the amount of meat I buy in uh, red meats especially like I don't know do, do you guys have any rules at all about um what kind of food you buy obviously Kieran you're you're big on organic i guess and no not, not necessarily i'll let the other guys answer first because i've been talking for a while well it comes back to sort of nutrition again for me really a lot of, a lot of foods are synthesized up to a certain point i mean a lot of things are not 100 percent natural unless it literally it comes out the green but it's it's trying to find that sort of intermediate does this have too much salt relative to its sort of volume or surface area too much, you know, processed sugar, too much fat. And like I say, I'll, I'll binge on a treat here and now. Ethically, yeah, again, I, I don't want to know that it's come from somewhere where, you know, I, I could I could seek possible better alternatives, but I don't want to want to be, you know, too militant about the origins of it, if, if the logic is a, a false logic. Mm. Oh, are you, Sam? Yeah, organic's good, man. It's just fucking higher nutrients, tastes better. It's just like, if you can do 
that's, that's what that's basically it so it's like if you have like an organic pepper versus like a normal pepper it's just like normal pepper tastes like shit because it's just like all water and there's no fucking nutrients and the way it's also been forced grown so it's been grown on a quicker cycle so it's been grown in like a lot of the times like uh they're just grown in like water baths or they've just been grown like three times as fast so it just hasn't actually had chance to sort of First of all, it hasn't got any nutrients in the ground, but also it just hasn't had a chance to grow properly. 100%. Yeah, yeah the, but there's no point getting like organic rice or some shit. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think it only makes sense with certain foods. I think I think it mostly makes sense with veg. Yeah, well, with veg, it's like I only do it with veg. So it's like I get like mostly yeah. fruit and veg, organic veg. Don't get organic bananas. Don't get. Or, I cannot afford organic beef. It's like fucking more expensive per pound than gold. And it's like chicken's fine, sardines are fucking sick. I, I literally eat like the same shit every day, so it's pretty sound. I would say a general rule of thumb is that any food that you are eating to get the majority of like your sort of nutritional benefits. So when people like eat things like spinach, um, when people eat things, yeah, I mean you mentioned pepper, so obviously a uh, lot of lot of vitamin C in, in the sweet peppers, a lot of antioxidants, like they're good to eat. So if you're going to be having that in your diet, it makes sense to have a r- accurate representation of what you think you're eating. Because if you're eating something that's lower quality, you may be thinking, oh yeah, I'm getting loads of that. When in reality, yeah, you yeah. might not be getting as much as you think you are. Like, yeah, you, it, you just have solid chunks of water. Yeah, and it's, it's like, you can taste it when you go, when you go from like fucking organic, fucking high, high Chinese social credit score fucking peppers to like, to like fucking Auschwitz peppers yeah. it's like it's generally just fucking horrible it re- you really can and like I said over the years I've really because something I've thought about was am I just biased towards organic food so I've really tried to like make an allowance for that by thinking like you know I'm, I'm not going to judge stuff when I eat it so I eat stuff that's made with pesticides a lot I do mainly because organic is quite expensive as you said the thing is and this is the thing that i say to most people is that if we all switch to eating organic tomorrow it'll probably be a lot cheaper the only reason why it's expensive is because it's something that's not uh that not everybody buys into whereas if we all suddenly yeah, start all, the, all these things are dictated when, by the market yeah, yeah. Sorry, but wouldn't, wouldn't demand go up so therefore supply would drop therefore they would have you know less to sell um, no, because uh, I think I think precisely if more, if if demand went up, then uh, there would yeah. hopefully be more businesses opening that were able to supply it because they would identify a big, uh, big opportunity in the market. One would hope. I don't know. It's yeah, but but no. Because the thing is, it's not the problem in California because there's so many fucking people there. It's like there's only so much food you can grow organically. Therefore, oh, dude. Like, people are fighting over like organic quints. So I used to I used to go over. I mean, I, I say I drove. I wasn't driving them, but I, I used to go over to Modesto, um, which is near where my son lives, and um, it's uh, it's kind of inland from San Francisco. And on the way there, some of the farms there, the, you may have heard about like these big farms they have in America, particularly California. Jesus Christ, like proper battery farms, just out in the middle of nowhere, and it is just like. Has anyone ever played Abe's Odyssey? No, no. No. Uh, so it was it was a game for PlayStation One, and it was basically this really dystopian game about this mega corporation abattoir. It's set on an alien planet. That's the only way I can sort of describe some of these farms that are like just out in the arse end of Cali. Is just like fucking big, big fields filled with metal containers with just cows just packed in all together, and it's fucking horrendous, mate. The shit that they didn't want you to see feeding the populace. 
dude, the smell from it is fucking awful. Like, it's just, yeah, it really was quite... Like, don't get me wrong, what you said earlier, Connor, about, like, cows, like, being kept in, like, during the winter and stuff, I agree. I think sometimes we read way too much into that. But what, I, what I've what i seen in those places... Yeah, well, one's compassionate and yeah, one exactly. isn't. And that's, the, yeah, exactly. This, and like, this was yeah. in, like... This was, like... Well, I mean, Modesto is usually between 30 and 40 degrees Celsius on a normal day. And it's just... And they're, they're all crammed in together in that heat. That was fucking horrific. And that is, unfortunately, what America's answer has been to feeding their massive population is to just make the big, big old mega farms, like, not just of animals, but of the vegetables as well. When you see it all being grown, it's fucking crazy. And it makes you wonder, like, could they ever switch to an only organic alternative? I don't think they could. No, they couldn't. It's like, we're just too big to speak. We're victims of our own success. Like, we're just overpopulating the world. And in the yeah. same way that if you get loads of rats on an island, everything dies. That's exactly what's happened with us as species. We just... So this is... Well, yeah. Too many of us. That's, that's where coronavirus came in. Well, I fucking wish, mate. That actually have helped out quite a lot. It, it would have helped out... It, it would have been shit for the people who lost people they loved. But, well, yeah. like, that would have helped out the planet, restore a bit more balance. That's why, like, all the people who own big business are like... Oh fuck! We need to get off of this rock. Like, like everything is about getting to next planets. This is actually something he talks about, and he says the virtue of stewardship is a more helpful way than just thinking purely in terms of organic or not organic. Uh, you might have mentioned, you might have heard stewardship mentioned in like Christian contexts. The idea that we're uh, caretakers of the land, uh, that it's not ours per se. It's something we have to inherit and then pass on. Uh, and sort of have the wisdom to know what to do with it in the time. So kind of like sustainability, but not sustainability at any cost, like you were saying about that that cow farm, or um, you know, just building like fuckloads of polytunnels in the in the Y Valley or something, just to meet and make ends meet. But yeah, so kind of like sustainability with humility, and um, it's kind of, kind of an interesting idea. I think I think somewhere in there is is the right way forward. And that's kind of like that's that's the ideal, though, isn't it? But it's just not like it's not compatible with, with the real world. That's fine when you have, you know, like when you have like a medieval. I remember night talking about like um, you know, how we used to like have the forest really well maintained, but that's because you know, like how many people died in childbirth. Like our child mortality rate was insane, so we just had so many less people. So many, so many fucking brain yeah we just had less people and it's just like you look at companies now that are talking about i think synthesized meat is probably one of the, the only fucking hopes we've got yeah i, I think that's I, yeah i think that's part of this kind of idea have you seen these people who are talking about like grinding up bugs for protein and shit that's that's the level we're starting to get to oh mate bugs are so easy to harvest and farm but it's yeah it's starting, to get, it's starting to get genuinely quite dystopian as we like spiral into the day after What's that film by the guy who directed Parasite? Um, the one that's set on the train uh, going through Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, yeah. That's literally that though, isn't it? The protein blocks when they find yeah, out what it's, they it's, are. It's yeah, it's like protein yeah, blocks. Just, just loads of cockroaches or whatever being ground up and put into like a little... <laughs> It's like the 40k thing of like recycled humans. It's like eventually the population will get to a point where we'll have to do something like that. The Groden Lab meat looks fucking awesome because it's literally just cells. So there's not even an animal involved. It's just cells that they shock with electricity to grow. So that looks like... It's due to peak at like uh, 9 billion, isn't it? It's like supposedly in the 
What people in the next fifty years? What? Yeah, the yeah. population. Seven and a half billion at the moment. Nuts, mate. It's actually nuts. Do you know what else is going to happen in about fifty years' time? Well, water, sh- water shortage. <laughs> Sam's going to get laid. <laughs> we're we're going <laughs> to. Uh, I've got that day marked out my calendar, mate. I've got a fucking. I've got a twenty seventy calendar. Mine, well, mine doesn't go that far. <laughs> ten, ten, ten minutes slot, and that's it. 10 minutes slot, then back to reading 40k books. That's it. Yeah, apparently we're going to run out of topsoil <laughs> in about 50, 60 years' time. It takes about a thousand, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, like we're depleting the soil crazy rate. We've got 60 harvests left, and it takes about, apparently, about a thousand years to generate three inches of topsoil. So uh, we're, we're fucked either way, basically. Wow. Sick. That's the most, in terms of stewardship, that's the thing we probably should be on top of the most, I think, rather than yeah. being a direct animal. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why the idea of stewardship is just a bit of a fucking meme, to be well, honest. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's exactly the point. Well, no, because, no, because it is just like, well, oh yeah, we should be laying off the land, but we're not, and we can't, so we shan't. So, so that was a little, little rhyme there. Animate fucking lyrical madness. That's, that's what I do in between not getting laid. <laughs> Our efforts would be much better focused on some real problems, such as, I mean, for one, like plastic pollution <laughs> and stuff like that. But what Grilling just said about um, like topsoil and stuff, to me, that's pretty fucking spooky, man. Like, yeah, it's not great. Yeah, yeah. like that's, that's very pressing. Yeah, also global warming is still like a thing as well. It's yeah, taking along, and like plastic pollution is not good. But yeah, that's what I mean about stewardship. Is just we have just been taking, taking, and just sort of like not thinking about what we're sort of leaving behind. And now we're sort of yeah. So, so yeah, so a good steward would would find ways of trying to reverse that because yeah. because we've been thinking just in terms of sustainability at any cost and just like meeting demand. And it's like we need to think more laterally and think about ways around these problems rather than just fucking sticking more and more polytunnels up. Yeah. How are we doing with time? Should I just do the last one? Yeah, let's do it. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the last idea he talks about is seasonality and he has this really weird virtue to get around this uh, as to why we should sort of actually care about vegetables being seasonal and things, uh, which is this idea being kind of more connected with nature but not just nature in like a woolly way like oh you know mother earth or anything but like appreciating that there's actually this crazy flow of time that we never experience when we're stuck in an office or like always stuck in rooms like 28 celsius or like in the middle of cities when we're not around trees actually realizing that there's a like a push and pull of the earth that kind of comes and goes so like there's obviously the environmental point about shipping out bananas you can do that at low costs that's fine but then other vegetables and things you have to look case by case because it starts to get really shitty if you start like shipping in strawberries and things and there's also the case of like well what exactly is seasonal because like a lot of that stuff can change yeah the the main point is aesthetic as well like i don't think it's i think it's just kind of good to be a little bit more patient and just just think well for a start vegetables that are out of season kind of taste shit it's like why am i in, in a rush to have like a worse version of something wouldn't it be better to just wait agreed i moved my fucking avocados in december 
Yeah, mate, I need my fucking, I need my margarita with like pineapple and mango in fucking January. Like it's, it's just, it's just ridiculous. It's just people doing it because they can and because they don't actually appreciate the fact that sometimes it is just better to wait for these things, like you said. But I guess that comes down to more just like a craving for a certain type of food. Like I only like this type of fruit. I want to eat it all year round. And if I have an option to do so, I will. Or looking at it with a bit more of a chore outlook, which is like, I actually enjoy this food, but I understand that certain times of the year, probably better to focus on eating this stuff instead and enjoying that whilst it's in its prime. goes back to what we were saying about like immediate gratifications, what people are seeking. Yeah, 100%. And also like gardens as well. Like people don't really understand what it means to have things in season. You realize just how short a window of time you have to, to experience something. So I've just started growing flowers recently. It's like, oh shit, the only bloom for like three months some of these things and it's just like just these small windows you start to appreciate the flow of time itself just a lot more in doing that wasn't that one of the first schools of buddhism was all about gardening yeah i think it was yeah and then i think it started out as gardening and then it evolved into life is suffering which is a well that got dark (laughs) the fucking it's a fucking relatable uh transition yeah yeah it's like yeah we're not we're not affected by winter or spring anymore and we just live in this like weird bland phantom menace world made of cgi cgi mace windu avocado yeah i'm I'm perfectly happy to wait a few months for a seasonal fruit or vegetable to appear on, on the supermarket shelf i mean based on yeah, in fact, I know that most fruit is water, sugar, and mainly vitamin C anyway, with the exception of a few. Um, so I'm not really sold on the romanticism of just you know the design of a, of a new fruit appearing on the shelf. I'll happily just compromise based on the fact that I feel lucky that I'm living, even despite you know this global pandemic now and not let's say about a thousand years ago where I didn't know where my next meal was coming from, apart from pottage maybe. 10, 10 out of 10 would would rate pottage. Fucking amen. Tasty wheat. I don't know if you guys ever think about fair trade. Um, uh, yeah, yes. In a way, I've almost, in a bad, it sounds bad, but I've almost got forgotten that that was a thing when I see it on, you know, bananas and stuff. But yeah. Uh, it's always been put on the back burners, isn't it? I, I don't know how I feel about the actual sticker fair trade on something because I don't know whether it is actually genuinely making a difference or not. But I think what it's... Where's the money going? I think what it, what it claims to stand for, whether it does or don't, I haven't done any interest into fair trade. I, I, I haven't done any interest. I haven't done any research into fair trade, so I don't know how legitimate they are. But yeah, I think that... Slip there, mate. <laughs> I think, I think the, the, the premise that we should expect that people that sink their labor into producing something of value should be getting a fair wage uh like i appreciate in other countries their currency works differently and it probably you know when we compare it to what we earn that doesn't always marry up but at least they should be able to earn a salary that allows them to support their family that allows them to kind of do something that's actually representative of the amount of labor that they've put into it so i i agree with that definitely yeah the, the difficulty is uh obviously we have the chance to buy fair trade all the time and most of us don't. And are we complicit in like a very exploitative economy? Yeah. I, I do, I do agree with him in the sense that I think history will come to judge this sort of time and what we did uh, quite harshly. But yeah, it's, I, I, I really need to look into fair trade a lot more. 
and figure out ways. It's it's fucking minefield. All of this stuff. Yeah, it's like all the choice, all the choices you can make. I, th- I think on like a, I know, and I guess I was like planning to talk a little bit more on like nutrition. Than I thought, but one thing I will say to people is that it's really important to not fucking stress yourself out about all of this stuff. I mean, yes, okay, educate yourself on like the benefits of eating organic versus non-organic and you know, but educate yourself on this and that. Everything that we've discussed in this podcast are definitely things people should be thinking about and considering. But if it gets to the point where you're really stressing out about it, it's probably gonna have a much more detrimental effect on your life and the lives of those around you than if you just chilled out and just said, I don't understand that. So I'm just gonna eat this and see how I feel. Like eating stuff that has pesticides on it or eating stuff on it that isn't fair trade it's not going to kill you if you're able to sit down and have that time to figure out what what works for you and what you agree with and what you disagree with then great but i think a big thing that we need to focus on as a society, as a society is just kind of bringing the stress down and focus on sorting ourselves out first before we try and fix the world so kind of the whole setting your house in order do you know what I mean? Like, because if, if if I've got somebody on the phone to me who's saying, oh, you know, I was having a mare last night. I couldn't find any fair trade bananas. And then like, I love bananas and I wasn't able to have them. And then I got really stressed. Like, well, just eat the fucking bananas. Like, get what you can. If it's going to cause you a meltdown, if you're like, you know, if it's going to start causing issues with your eating, don't let it get to that point. So I think we're quite privileged in the sense that we can sit on this podcast, we can use critical thinking and we can dissect these things in a, in a relatively logical way, but not everyone's going to be able to do that and marry that up with a lifestyle that's healthy. Yeah. I mean, the pursuit of a good life philosophy in itself is a privilege. There's no mistake about it. This is why I mentioned class so much. And I, I think this, this guy's relatively middle-class. I mean, I, there was a comment about like, he compares like sex workers, soldiers that get shot at and people that clean toilets in like one sentence. That's that stuck out to me. I was like, right, you've obviously never cleaned a toilet in your life. Uh, I have been been shot at and sexually assaulted whilst cleaning a toilet. (laughs) I don't know, mate. Try working at Euro garages. (laughs) It's just like, it's just, they're not equivocal. It's like a, a paid cleaner. Like, uh, if somebody would have profession, like it is a profession to, to be a cleaner. Like it's not, uh, it's, and I, I do, I do think there's, there's elements that transcend class self care. I don't think is a, is a, is a class. It's just like what you're, you're on about, like the, the, the most basic stuff I think anyone can do, but when it starts to come to like the effect you can have through your consumption and stuff, I think that's where it starts to get very fucking difficult. Um, cause, cause it's obviously a question of money. But like developing virtues, I think everybody can do, you know, and part of that self-care is cultivating the, this kind of like wisdom or phrenesis or um, I said, I said the fucking golden, golden word. Have you seen, um, have you seen all this stuff about uh, learned helplessness and self-hatred and about how that affects diet choice? But people who are like below the poverty line, having really shit time, uh, have a hard life don't uh, there has a thing called like learn helplessness which is basically like i deserve the life that i have i'm a piece of shit the situation is around me and this is what i deserve mm. therefore i will go out and smoke cigarettes and eat loads of sugar and live off nothing but harry mm. bow and drink loads of coke because that's what i deserve having vegetables and stuff is actually in a lot of cases cheaper so it's not like a it's not a it's not a budget thing 
it's not i think that's that's like a sort of myth that it's like oh yeah well it's just because i can't afford the good foods like no you you could vegetables are cheap as fuck you could live a really healthy vegetarian lifestyle but i think part of it is the fact that you don't believe that you deserve you don't have the level of self-respect or you think that you deserve to be treated like a piece of shit therefore you eat terribly yeah it, it honestly is all all one package yeah and it, i, I is, think yeah. It it really is just more helpful rather than just getting lost in like endless minefields of oh, should I get organic, should I get this? It's just much easier to be like, I'm gonna try and work on myself as a person and reflect that in the choices I make. And just realizing as well that you won't have all the answers straight away. Like 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 you were saying, Kieran. Um he actually has a really, really good quote. I fucking love this quote. I read this uh, like an hour before the podcast. He says the moral life is lived in a state of bewildered inquiry between conviction and apathy. So the idea that you should be morally serious, but skeptical about moral certainty. It's like every time you think you know the answer, you're probably wrong, but you still got to keep try, trying to like ask questions. And it's just like, you, you're never going to be right. No. But that doesn't mean that you can't just keep thinking. And I just, yeah, I fucking love that. Yeah, that's that's really cool. There was a um, there was an example I was going to bring up earlier that kind of ties into that. Which I think when we were talking about diets earlier, I think there's a lot of dogmatism in the world of nutrition and stuff, and like people will latch onto something and refuse to like look beyond it. The first example that we know of a of a low carb diet was actually introduced around the um, 1860s. Um, and it was basically a geezer called um, William Banting. And he, he worked as an undertaker. So like, you know, he's around embalming fluid and shit. So he's probably batshit. And he basically thought that, um, well, he, he wrote a letter, which is called A Letter on Corpulence Addressed to the Public. Uh, for those who don't know what corpulence is, it's basically just the state of being obese of being fat and he wrote in this letter because he'd had a lot of success with the low carb diet and he wrote in this letter it would afford me infinite pleasure and satisfaction to name the author of my redemption from the calamity as he is the only one that i have been able to find and my search has not been sparing who seems thoroughly up in the question but such publicity might be construed improperly and i have therefore only to offer my personal experience as the stepping stone to public investigation and to proceed with my narrative of facts, earnestly hoping the reader will patiently peruse and thoughtfully consider it with forbearance for any fault or style or diction and for any seeming presumption in publishing it. So basically what he's saying in that is that I found something that worked for me and it was really good, but I'm not claiming that it's amazing and it's going to work for everyone. I've observed it. And I've questioned whether the results are repeatable, not just for myself, but others as well, and use this to kind of learn. And that's something that's absolutely crucial to note. And one that I feel that many people, not just in the world of nutrition, but just in general, are quick to forget. Just because you've learned something and you like it and it's cool and it makes sense and it's good. And there's a lot of things that back it up. Keep asking questions. Like the first thing I do when I learn something good, I will instantly do research into the polar opposite of that idea. So if I've found something that I like, I will do everything I can to dig up everything, every bit of evidence against it. And then I'll look at the arguments for and against, and I'll figure out where I sit between the two. And that gives me a bit of comfort that I've made some effort to come up with a balanced view. That's actually a very good thing to do. And I don't think a lot of people ever do that. They just 
continually try and support their own sort of echo chamber belief, really, and hold on to one small sort of slight truth. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there. And I'm not perfect at it. And I know I get it wrong and we all get it wrong because ultimately we all have biases. And I know that to a degree, even when I do that, my bias will probably still take over. But I feel like if I don't at least try... Giving yourself a chance. Yeah, I'm giving myself a chance at least. And I don't know whether that is a legitimate chance or whether I will just constantly come to the same conclusion because there's no such thing as free will and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably, probably the second one. Yeah, no, but... Uh, but at least I'm at least I kind of eliminate the anxiety that I haven't tried. At least I know then that, okay, I've looked at both and I've given myself the best shot of having a moment of clarity. Whatever happens will happen. Okay. My bias is going to take over. Great. But maybe it will, my opinion on it will change. And maybe that was my bias all along was that for, that would result in my opinion changing. But I don't know. I just feel like it works for me and I feel a lot more satisfied afterwards as well. Answers are never simple anyway. I think if, if you feel like you've got a very simple answer and you, you're incredibly certain with that, you're probably wrong. Mm. And I, I think it's just good to be okay with that and to just relax into that and just be like, answers aren't easy. So just don't stress about it and, and just, just keep revisiting the question. I saw a great um, debate or conversation, whatever you want to call it, between... Um, it was in a few parts and you guys might have seen it. Um, between... Um, Paul and Jeterson and Ham uh, Saris. Um, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Jordan Peterson and Ham Saris, where basically they're debating uh, like religion and God and stuff like that. And in one of the videos in particular, like Sam is quite condescending to Jordan. And I fucking love it when Sam Harris gets condescending. He's catty, isn't he? And he's I funny. He's actually like a little fucking bitch, mate. It's so sick. But ultimately, he's doing the exact same thing you were just talking about, Connor, because basically Jordan's answer is quite long. We all know what Jordan Peterson's like. There's a lot of word salad. That's just how he explains things. And Sam's basically, uh, his argument that Jordan's wrong is predicated upon the fact that Jordan's taken a long time to explain it. And at one point, Sam says, here's an answer for you. Very probably not. And he gives them three words and everyone claps and laughs and whatever. But it's like you can't throw the you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like just because someone's giving a long answer and is trying to think about something a bit more critically doesn't mean that they're wrong. Like and just because you're giving an answer that's really easy to explain and and, uh, and succinct, like it it doesn't mean that you're right. So yeah, you're 100 right there. Yeah, I, I actually think. If you, if you give answers that are too simplistic, they're not accurate. I think the, the devil's in the details. I think especially when you're talking about religion and God and things. Three-word counterpunch. You can't just say things like, I think we were saying the other day, um, yeah, like, do you believe in God? Or like, God is a lie. It's like, well, what do you mean? Like, you have to explain what you mean. You have to explain how you came to this idea. Like, th- that's the thing with those debates. They just got really sort of pop culture-y and, and like... It, it just became like who can look the best. It, it's it was just like it was like a political debate. Yeah, fucking those those debates and the one against Zizek is just like the most postmodern thing you've ever seen. It's like a weird like fucking MMA smackdown. Like yeah, it's just the fact that those things happen is just so 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 strange. It's the antithesis of philosophy. It's quite tough, quite nicely actually. Um, one of you lads might know which which philosopher or prominent figure said a debate is not necessarily something you should uh, win, but something you should learn from. Do we, do we know who said that? Socrates. Socrates. Is it me? 
I think it was me. I, I said that in the last... Shit, mate, it might actually be you. Yeah, no, I think it was. Oh, Connor, did you just get quoted for the first time? Oh, bless him. I don't know how to feel. It's a good fucking quote. That's an Xbox trophy right there. <laughs> I feel really embarrassed. It's a good quote as well. It's a good quote. It's a good quote. I like that one. Yeah. Oh, thanks. So I was going to say, that's why those YouTube videos were like, Jordan Beeson eats a boy. And it's just like, well, and then it's just like a really calm <laughs> video of him explaining what Dostoevsky thought. Well, it's, it's like, clickbait, yeah, it's clickbait, isn't it? How are you getting that out of that? It's, it's clickbait, absolute yeah. clickbait. Yeah, because yeah. I clicked in it because I wanted to see Jordan and <laughs> eat a boy. <laughs> anyway, if you feel bad about uh, debates, you don't know what to think. Just remember that Emmanuel Kant died eating cheese sandwiches. <laughs>